Let me pray too for just a second. Father, again, just thinking of John 15, Lord, a passage I've been in this past week that uh, there's all kinds of things we can do on this earth with the talents and gifts you give us. But the truth is we can do nothing of spiritual significance or life or longevity in our own power or strength, Lord. That comes from you and your spirit. And we ask you to be accomplishing all your goodwill in our midst this morning. Help us to see you more clearly, Lord. Help us to lay hold of some truths perhaps that you want us to take away to change the way we think or the way we live. Lord, most of all, would you honor yourself. Help us to see you more clearly and love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, uh, the term tragedy in the literary sense took on uh, new or deeper meaning for me. When my girls were young, we were giving them a little bit of culture, you know, giving them part of their good homeschooling education. And part of that was we brought a, a Shakespearean play home to watch on video, and it was Macbeth. And if you don't know, Macbeth is a tragedy. And that means that at the end of the play, everyone you know and care about dies. And as my four daughters are weeping in tears, and I'm wondering why in the world did I show them this tragedy? The term tragedy took on new meaning. Literarily, this is a tragedy. I'm going to open up with a tragedy again. This is another Shakespearean play. This one's called King Lear. King Lear was the king, supposedly a real king, by the way, king of Britain before the Romans. And in King Lear, the tragedy starts to unfold right from the beginning, from the opening scene of the play. So Lear's getting a little older, and he wants to wind things down. He wants his life to be a little easier in his golden autumn days. And so he's planned to divide his kingdom between his daughters. He's got three daughters. Goneril Reagan, speaking of Reagan, a little different character here. The older daughters, both married, and then the youngest, Cordelia. So in his court, he informs his daughter that this is the manner of the disposition of his kingdom to the three daughters. The daughter that loves him most will get the choicest part of his kingdom. And so there's going to be a rivalry in his presence in the court for each daughter to declare to him the most convincing tale of love for their dad. And the winner gets the choicest part of the kingdom. So they're sort of almost like pets performing, you know, for their father's vanity as they start. And Goneril, the eldest, starts, and this is what she says. Sir, I love you more than words can wield the matter. Dearer than eyesight, space and liberty beyond what can be valued, rich or rare, no less than life with grace, health, beauty, honor, as much as child ever loved or father found, a love that makes breath poor and speech unable, beyond all manner of so much, I love you. Get you right here, doesn't it, Jess? Yeah. She's laying it on. So then it's her sister's Reagan's turn. And Reagan says ditto to everything she just said. But she comes too short. I profess myself an enemy to all other joys, which the most precious square of sense possesses, and find I am alone felicitate in your dear highness's love. Dad, I'm unique. 
as the one who loves you most and best. I'm alone in the love that I have for you. Now, the truth is, if you've read Lear, you know these daughters don't love dad. You know, he's not dear old dad very long. Because as the tragedy unfolds, each in their own turn will despise and abuse King Lear. doesn't go well for him. And of course, his youngest daughter, Cordelia, she knows this. And Cordelia is made of better stuff than her sister's. And she chooses not to rise to the bait, as it were, to flatter her father, to say, I'm going to get something for myself, and I'm willing to do it through this flattery. She loves him too truly, and her character is too true for that. So Lear comes to the youngest last and says, What can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sister? Speak. Cordelia says, uh, Nothing my Lord. Nothing. Nothing. Lear warns her, nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. She says, unhappy that I am, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I love your majesty according to my bond, nor more, nor less. I love you as a daughter should. Dad, no more, no less. Lear says, how, how, Cordelia, mend your speech a little lest it may mar your fortunes. Cordelia says, Good my Lord, you have begot me, bred me, loved me. I return those duties back as are right fit. Obey you, love you, and most honor you. She goes on to talk a little bit about her sister's feigned speech. Lear is not happy, and he says, So young, and so untender. And Cordelia corrects him, so young, my Lord, and true. I've spoken the truth. Cordelia, of course, is banished from the king in the kingdom, and as the tragedy winds down, and the king is near death himself, he sees that it is his youngest daughter, the one who was willing to say the hard thing and do the hard thing, was the daughter who loved him. Truly, it wasn't the ones who said the things his ears wanted to hear. It wasn't the daughters who flattered him to get something from him. The daughter who spoke truth, who said the hard things and did the hard things, that was the one that loved him truly. You know, if you haven't found out now, by now you will, to say the truth to people at various times, especially depending on what's at stake, is a hard thing to do. And oftentimes it comes with a price to pay. And I've said this before, but it bears repeating. So often for us as Christians in the West, our aspiration to Christ-likeness rises no higher than to be thought nice by others. We're nice. They're a nice person. They don't offend people. They don't say hard things. They don't do hard things. They're just... Nice. But the truth is, sometimes we are constrained and we are required, both because we belong to Christ and because of the relationships He's called us into, to say hard things, true things, and to do hard things, whatever the outcome is. In this tragedy, this cost Cordelia her place on the throne in her father's country, at the end, it costs her her life because this vanity of his. 
puts these wheels in motion that, of course, all ends in death. But ask yourself the question, just as we get started here into the text, am I simply willing to say hard things when the situation calls for it? Am am I willing to do the hard things when the situation requires it because I'm a follower of Christ? And I think as often as not, the standard we set for ourselves is so stinking low that we always make it because it's our standard, it's not the Scriptures, it's not Christ, it's not our Father's. Sometimes we must say the hard things and we must do the hard things as Christ's followers. We're going to be back in 2 Corinthians this morning as we're winding down Paul's second epistle. Hopefully you've got a study sheet. If not, grab your Bibles. I'm going to read from the NASB here. Uh, Paul's winding down in this letter to the church he founded, but this is a church that has preferred the flattering, sometimes, and abusive other times, treatment of the folks he calls pseudo-apostles to Paul's Christ-like servant leadership. So we're in chapter 12, starting at verse 20, and we'll read through into chapter 13 at verse 6. Paul says, I am afraid that perhaps when I come, anticipating his return to them, when I come I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. That's a pretty good laundry list for Christians in a church, isn't it? And he's not even done. I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Chapter 13 He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. And now he's going to quote from Deuteronomy. This this quote actually references two passages in Deuteronomy 17.6 and 19.15. And by the way, that's the background for Matthew 18, which we'll refer to here in a minute again. When Jesus talks about confronting our brother or a sister in Christ, it's this text that he refers to. So Paul says, when he comes... Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Under the law in Jewish times, a person could not be condemned by one person accusing him. There had to be two or three witnesses to validate a claim against someone before they could be condemned. And Paul says that's his rule of thumb here too. Everything that we do, he says, will be validated by others. I have previously said when present the second time and now absent I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well that if I come again I will not spare anyone since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak towards you but mighty in you. For indeed he, Jesus, was crucified because of weakness yet he lives because of the power of God. We also are weak in Him, yet we will live with Him because of the power of God. He says here, directed toward you. Remember, Paul throughout his letter says, everything he does and God's will towards them, it's for them, it's for their life. His motive is to serve them. God's power directed toward you. Here, verse 5, as he winds down this section, he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you 
unless indeed you fail the test. We could do a whole teaching on this verse alone. I'm not going to this morning, but I will just mention Paul is using sarcasm here as he winds down this section. Throughout, the Corinthians are questioning whether he's really an apostle. And so he sarcastically says to them, if you're really believers. But if he's already said they were, if you remember back in chapter 3, he said, you are our epistles, your faith in Christ. That's what validates my apostleship. So we'll cover a couple points here this morning. The first is the fear of disappointment. If you look back at uh, verse 20 in chapter 12, Paul says, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. You know, in their whole relationship, there was this back and forth contention. They were at odds with each other. They weren't feeling the love between to or from each other at all. Have you ever been, I suspect you have, have you ever been estranged from someone? Could be anyone, but somebody you've had an ongoing relationship with and you're estranged from them, but you know some event or some occasion is coming up where you're going to be compelled to mix with them. You're going to be seeing them again. You know, how, how do you feel? How do you think about that? Maybe dread, you know, maybe anxiety, maybe fear, maybe anger. You know, but something's going to compel you to re-engage with them. Or I'm sure this has never happened to anyone here, but I think maybe once in my life, I've gone to bed angry with my spouse. And when I wake up in the morning, you know, I've, I've slept through the night, my emotions... Yeah, Kathy can't believe that. But it has happened once in 31 years, once for sure. So you go to bed. You didn't settle it the night before. You go to bed angry. You crawl out of bed the next morning. You know what the first thing on your mind is? Uh, what's it going to be like when she gets up, when he gets up? You know, will sleep sort of have soothed the emotions? Will I be good to go? Or is the tension going to escalate right again at breakfast? Or what's that going to look like? Or kids, this certainly isn't reserved for adults only. Ever been at odds, Aaron, with one of your siblings, with a brother or sister, you know? Or Andrew, maybe with a friend, right? Or Jonathan, maybe somebody at school or somebody, sports, athletics, whatever. But as you think about, I'm going to see that person again, I'm going to be compelled to sort of at least re-engage with them. What's that like? What's going on in our minds? Anxiety, anger, frustration, probably something along that line. It's uncomfortable. And that's exactly the thing that Paul's facing as he thinks about coming back to visit the Corinthian church. They're at odds. It's not good. And so he says, you know, when I come back, uh, I may not be what you wanted me to be. And you may not be what I wanted you to be. I'm concerned about what that relationship is going to be like. How's it going to go? Will they accept what I've said? Will there be forgiveness and reconciliation when I see you guys again? Or is there going to be further alienation and distance in our relationship? What is that going to be like? Now, you know, to Paul's credit, though he's tentative about the kind of reception he's going to get, Paul is committed to re-engage with the Corinthian church. He's the guy that founded the church. He's the apostle God speaks through to them. And for Paul, there's no option. I've got to go back. I've got to confront them on some issues. I've got to affirm my love for them on some other ways. But I must re-engage. I'm going back. I'm committed. Now, I think for us, uh, perhaps more often than not, if we're in a relationship that hits a snag, 
a good relationship, a relationship with another Christian, certainly with our spouse, with friends, with people in the church. If we're in a relationship with someone and that relationship hits a snag, and it gets very uncomfortable, let's assume, very uncomfortable, what's our first thought generally? When I think, wow, if I see them again, what's that going to require of me and of them? Usually my thought is, I just like to sort of cut the line and go on down the road, right? I just like to avoid the pain and frustration. I just like to pick up my marbles and find a new game. You know, uh, in extreme cases, I'm saying, forget this marriage, I'm going on down. You know, forget that friendship of years. You know, this is too much. You know, they've gone too far this time. I'm done. I think more often than not, because it's a way to avoid pain and frustration, we choose not to re-engage. We simply say, hey, it's uncomfortable. I don't need this. I put up with so much. Julie, you wouldn't believe how much I put up with, you know. If others only knew what I put up with, they would understand. Well, I've written him off. I've written her off. I'm going down the road. I'm going to life in the fast lane. I'm getting out of here. Paul was not only willing, Paul was committed to re-engage. And you know, it does take a kind of maturity for sure. I'm not saying this is easy. It's not. It's uncomfortable oftentimes. But you know, part of being a mature Christian is saying, I'm willing to do the hard thing. Though it would be more comfortable short term, I'm willing to re-engage. I think I have a responsibility towards my spouse or my friend or that person in church. I think I'm in a relationship God wants me to work at even though I'm offended. Or we're not feeling the love between each other and I'm misunderstood and they feel misunderstood. Paul said, I'm re-engaging, guys. I'm coming back. We're going to work through these issues. And I think we need to change our mindset from saying, sort of as our default, I'm cutting and running, to saying, Lord, what do you have in this? What do you require of me? What do I need to do to express the love of Christ to this person? All relationships aren't mendable, by the way. I was talking to somebody yesterday. You know, uh, Paul and Barnabas got in, not a fist fight, but they didn't come to blows, but they split up their ministry over a disagreement. They went their own separate ways. And sometimes we can't keep a relationship going, not always. But as a default position, are we willing to say, Lord, do you want me to stay engaged in this? What does it look like to love them in your name? Am I willing to stay in it when it's uncomfortable and hard to do? The second thing I want to draw out of this passage, and it's from verse 21 in chapter 12 up through verse 4 in chapter uh, 13, is simply doing the hard thing, saying the hard thing and doing the hard thing. Uh, not in this epistle, but in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. In chapter 5, the Corinthian church had a, an individual in their midst. This was common knowledge. This wasn't hidden. He was having sex with his stepmom. And they thought, we're kind of cosmopolitan. We're hip. We're with the times. And that's okay. We're Christians. We're, we're broad-minded. Paul says, well, no, no. Be broad-minded toward those who are not yet Christians, Paul says. You can't leave the world. You're going to hang out with people who don't know Christ. That's okay. But if someone claims to be a Christian, you're not free to say that's okay. 
And so Paul had said, sort of in the role of an enforcer in 1 Corinthians 5, he said, you guys are going to meet and the Spirit of Christ will be there with you. I'll be with you in spirit. And we're delivering that one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit will be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. It's for his benefit. But the church was unwilling to do the hard thing. Paul comes in and says, this must be done. It's not an option. So as he contemplates coming back to that same group, he's wondering if he's going to be put back in the same role again. Saying the hard thing. Doing the hard thing. Saying the things that need to be said, but no one else is saying them. Doing the hard thing. The confrontation over sin that needs to be done, but no one else is willing to do it. If you remember the old movies out of the 70s and 80s, Dirty Harry, one of the He's one of my favorite philosophers, by the way, but I'll share those things on another day. But someone says of Dirty Harry in one of the movies, Harry always gets the dirty end of the stick. And if you find that sort of this responsibility no one else is picking up, you sort of feel that way. It's kind of the dirty end of the stick. Do I really have to do this again? Paul was willing to do what was hard to do, and no one else was doing it. But Paul says, I have no choice. That's what I'm willing to come in and do. Now, what he's talking about here is confronting individuals over sin. And as we look at this this morning, what I want to restrain our conversation to really has to do with the attitude that we go in with as well as the willingness itself, the attitude or the spirit we take with us and the willingness because that's what Paul talks on here this morning. We're not getting into the mechanics of this this morning. That would be for another day. So if you look at passages like Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, Galatians 6, 1, 1 Timothy 5, verses 19 through 21. Those are the how-to passages. Matthew 18 certainly being the best known of those. That's not really what we're looking at this morning. This morning, we're really looking at both the attitude of the Spirit we take into this as well as the willingness. So starting with Paul's attitude, if you look at verse 21 there in chapter 12, he says... I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past. They've not repented. Paul's attitude, he mentions mourning and humiliation or humility. So on mourning and sorrow, Paul feels for the sin of the Corinthians. You know, and it's funny, they don't. But Paul looks at the sin in the Corinthian church and for him, he feels connected to it. He is sorry over what's going on in their life and in their church. He's sorry, I think, both Christ is dishonored. They're Christians, they're the church, and they don't look like it and they don't live like it. And I think he's sorry over the personal loss that goes on in the lives of the people who are sinning. You know, you're losing out on life when we sin. You're not getting more of it. So Paul, when he thinks about the sin going on in the church at Corinth, Paul says, I'm viscerally connected to this. My emotional response is sorrow. I'm mourning over sins. They're not, but I am. I think about what they're doing, and it brings sorrow, it brings sadness, it brings a sense of mourning to me. This isn't what God wants, and it's not what's good for them. When you hear that someone you know, some professing Christian, Lord willing, someone you know well enough that it would affect you in one way or another, when you hear that a Christian you know has fallen morally, what's your first response? What's our first response? I mean, it could be a, a number of things, right? 
you could have a sense of smug satisfaction. You could say, I, I, I knew he wasn't. He wasn't all that he said he was. I, I knew she was putting on. I, I, she wasn't really there. You know, this was, this was going to happen. I saw it come. Smug. Satisfied. You know, sometimes too, isn't it this? Uh, I'm glad it's him and not me. I'm glad it's her and not I'm glad it's their sin that found out and not mine. Sometimes we're just glad that we weren't in the crosshairs, right? That, that it's somebody else, it's not us. You know, the worst response, I think, is simply indifference. Uh, they don't matter enough to me, you know. Oh, well. Pass the potatoes. Life goes on. Oh, well. What's our response when someone we know, maybe somebody we have a vested interest in, what, how do we respond? What's that feel like to us? in our emotions, when we know somebody else we know we're associated with, we care about, somebody else has fallen in sin. You know, Paul's response is visceral, it's emotional, it's sorrow, it's genuine sadness over the failure that's going on. It's not the finger first, guys. It's this connection to them emotionally because life is not what it should be. Christ is not honored the way He should be. There's going to be fallout in their life. Paul's first emotion is sorrow and mourning. How do we respond when someone we know falls? In verse 21, he goes on and he also says he has this spirit or this attitude, this reaction of, he says, humiliation. We could say humility, but he actually takes it a step further. He says humiliation, verse 21 God may humiliate me. What does he mean? It, Paul's not the one that sins, so why would he say, God, my God may humiliate me when I get back to you? Have you guys ever been in a group and uh, maybe things are going along swimmingly and someone says or does something really rude and there's, there's this uncomfortable silence that follows? And then finally someone breaks the silence and they address the thing that was said. And everyone looks at the second person as if they've got a problem. Has anybody else here filled that role? And what? The person that calls out the shame, the shame is attached to them. Have you ever seen that? Who are you to say that to me? Look at them, all pious and everything. You know, the person that points it out, the person that's willing to say and do the hard thing, they are shamed by others. They end up bearing the shame that the others should be bearing. So Paul comes in and he says, guys, I'm so connected to you and I'm so willing to do and say the hard things. I'm afraid that when I come back, it's going to be more humiliation for me. I don't know if you guys have ever had to confront people, and for whatever reason, I hate it, but God's almost made a vocation out of this for me through my last 25 years or so. And you know, it is never easy. It's one of the hardest things you ever do, confronting someone else over sin. And I tell you, it, it's humbling. You have to examine your own motives just between you and the Lord. You have to examine your motives towards them. And you know, usually when you do these things, usually... I'm not saying this to tell you not to do it. Usually they, more often than not, they don't go well. There are tragedies. There's death. People don't respond well more often than not. 
It's a hard thing. And, and you know, the person that brings up the issue that must be brought up, they're the ones that everybody looks at like, what's wrong with you? You bear the humiliation. You bear the shame. And Paul says, I'm afraid when I get back, that's what's going to await me. I'll bring up the things that need to bring up, be brought up. I'll say the hard things that need to be said and what I'll get in return is not honor. It's not good standing. It's shame. It's the sense of humiliation. That's the way this dynamic tends to work. He'd also said back in chapter 11, Paul so closely associated with himself with these folks, the folks he's mentored, he's brought to the faith. He said there, who is weak without my being weak? When they're weak, I feel weak. He said, who is led into sin without my intense concern? Paul's connected to them. They matter. It's not academic. They matter. And so Paul says, whether it's a sense of shame and humiliation, I'm bringing sorrow with me too, but I'm going to re-engage. I must go back. I must say and do the hard thing. So when Paul goes in, his attitude, the spirit with which he's going back to the Corinthians in which he knows some hard things will need to be said and done, it's with this sense of mourning and sorrow. It's with humility and the willingness to take on humiliation or shame in order to please Christ and do right by them. That's his attitude. The second thing, though, is uh, Paul's willing to follow through. Paul's willing to follow through. At verse uh, 2 in chapter 13, he says, I won't spare anyone. Now, this isn't a threat like he's coming to mow everybody down. You know, what he means is whether you're high or low, whether you're important or not, whether you're male or female, whatever, whoever you are, whatever you're standing, Paul says, anyone that needs to be addressed over sin, that's who I'm going to be speaking to. That's God's kind of justice or judgment. It, it doesn't matter. Who's, who is sinning? Who needs to be reproved? Paul says, I won't spare anyone. He's willing to do the hard thing no matter who's involved. Now, he's not coming in recklessly. You know, he's not coming in uh, uh, with a machete cutting down the path. He said there in verse 1, no, I'm going to establish everything. The facts of everything, those will be established first. And then we'll address things as they really are, as things have been confirmed. I'm willing to come in and do the hard thing. So he's willing to confront those who continue in sin. Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, those are texts that talk about what that looks like. So Paul says, when I get there, I'm bringing a spirit of humility, of sorrow, but I'm also going to follow through and I'm going to say the hard things and I'm going to do the hard things. Now remember, Paul's hope in all of this, he's not trying to put anybody down. He's not making a name for himself. Paul's hope is always repentance. And if you go to Matthew 18 and look through it, the goal at each step along the line is always that your brother or sister in Christ will repent, turn around, and that your relationships will be restored. That's always the goal. And even in this letter earlier in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, the church had done right. They had put a man out of fellowship. They, they needed to, and they actually did it. But the guy had repented. He was sorry over what he'd done. And at that point, Paul said, forgive him and comfort him. He said, reaffirm your love for him. 
The work has been done. So don't leave him out in the cold. Bring him back in. The whole point was always repentance. You know, we're God's kids. God's not out to punish us for punishment's sake. He wants the relationship restored. And that's what Paul's after as well. Doing the hard thing like Paul did and like Jesus requires both a mournful and humble spirit and following through by actually speaking or doing the hard things. It requires both. We want to conduct ourselves in a way that does not further aggravate the situation for sure. And we want to fully, openly, and honestly confront the issue itself as well. If we feel sorrow over the sins of another, that's good as far as it goes. But if it stops there, it did not go far enough. Start with godly sorrow, but don't stop there. Confront when needed. You can see on the end of your teaching sheet something along this line. Sorrow without confrontation is shallow faith. You see, I feel so sorry I don't need to say anything. No. But truth without humility and a desire to help, that's just religion. It's pride and religion. Paul says when sin is being practiced openly in the church, those Christ followers who still name his name and say, we're following Jesus, they are constrained to share Paul's bowels, his heart of sorrow towards the sin and humility and then follow through and say the hard things and do the hard things, confront the sin. Everything about this this morning, this has to do with sin, something that's clearly sin. This isn't about differences of opinion. It's not about doctrines of secondary importance. This is about something that you and I, we all know that's sin. That's what he's talking about. Let me close with an example of this out of John 21. This is one of my favorite examples, too. John 21, when John's gospel is winding down, I find it interesting that one of the last things he records is Jesus restoring a man back to fellowship. And it's his good bud, his right-hand man, Peter. And if you remember, on the night Jesus is betrayed, Jesus tells his disciples, hey guys, tonight you're all going to fall away. You're all going to forsake me. And Peter hears this and he's like, no way. And he says, Lord, those guys might forsake you, but not me. I've made of better stuff than them. Lord, I love you deeply, truly. Give me the best part of your kingdom. I really love you more than all these others love you, Lord. I love you. I'm feeling it. I hope you're feeling it too. And Jesus says, well, Pete, no, you, you won't. Peter says, no, no, no. No, I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus says, well, no, you're not. And tonight, you'll not only not die for me, Pete, you'll deny you even know me three times. So Peter is boasted to the other apostles he loves Jesus better than they do. And he's denied Jesus three times that night. But the resurrection comes, a new day comes. And life goes on. Only something remains unsettled, doesn't it? And Jesus doesn't want to leave it unsettled. Pete's still a little bit at odds with himself and with the rest. So Pete and the boys, they go back and they do what they love to do. Guys, they go fishing. Back at the hood, back at the Sea of Galilee. And they're fishing all night. And they catch nothing. 
And I love this story. If you know Luke 5, this, we've seen this before. They, they fished all night, seven of them. Morning comes, no fish. And way back on the shore, they see a guy and he yells at them, Children, do you have any fish? And they don't have any fish. And he yells, you know, put down your net on the other side. And they do. Wow, now the net is full. Pete is dull. But John says, Pete, this has happened before. Luke 5, read Luke 5. When Jesus wanted to reach Peter's conscience before, he did it through fishing, and he's doing it again here. And John says, Pete, that's the Lord. Throws his stuff on, jumps in the water, can't wait for the boat, swims to shore. Jesus has breakfast, grilled fish, a little bread, they're ready to go. They come up, they share a meal with Jesus. The meal's over. And so Jesus says to Peter, Pete, do you love me more than these love me? He says more than these. I infer that he's saying, do you love me more than your fellow disciples love me, which you bragged on the night you betrayed me. Do you really love me more than these do? There's some difference in the Greek verbs here for love, which I'm not getting into this morning. Just the point. Pete, do you love me more than these? And Pete says, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. So a second time, probably after an uncomfortable pause. Pete, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Tend my flock, Pete. I think Pete's still dull. So the third time. So let's see. Boasted in front of the disciples. He loved them more than Jesus. He denied he knew him three times. So the third time Jesus says, Pete, do you love me? Now the text in John says Peter is grieved. He gets it. He's dull, but he's not stupid. He gets it. Wow. It says he's grieved. He's cut. And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed, feed my lambs. This was saying the hard things and doing the hard things kind of as good as it gets, guys, isn't it? Loving, tender. Jesus only wants to restore Peter. It's not about hammering him. It's not about rubbing his face in something he, he blew and he did wrong. Jesus knew everything that would happen. But that's what you see going on there. That kind of spirit for Peter's good. Restoring Peter back where for Pete now, Pete's going to be the spokesman for Jesus in just a few days. Pete's got to be ready to go. He can't be looking over his shoulder at his past failures. Jesus relieves him of the burden. He restores him to fellowship among the disciples. Everybody knows now that sin that was out in front of everybody, it was dealt with in front of everybody, we're good to go. Pete's good to go. My hope for us, uh, you know, there's so much that goes under the, the heading of Christianity broadly. Uh, my hope for us is that we practice it, that it's real. And part of being real with each other is being willing to feel sorrow over the sins of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's willing to say and to do the hard things instead of leaving it as a nice thought in our head that we don't ever quite get around to doing, following up on. You know, life is full of tragedies. They're all around us. They're all around us. Death, dying, separation, relationships that fall apart, you know, reputations that lie in the dust. Sometimes, not always certainly, but sometimes, simply by willing to say the hard thing, to speak the truth in love, to do the hard thing, to confront someone over sin, sometimes 
those things turn around. And if the tragedies don't become comedies, they at least come back to life. And let me just suggest, we be open, we be willing to say when we see someone else sinning, Lord, I feel the weight of that sin. I'm connected to my brother or sister in Christ. And Lord, if no one else does, I'm willing to say the hard thing. I'm willing to speak the truth in love. Lord Jesus, help us not live lives as hypocrites. God, we are our own worst enemies more often than not. Lord, we know so much more than we typically do. Would you help us rise to the occasions when when a brother or sister is sick in sin, Lord, would you help us go to them? And, and with Paul's kind of bowels of compassion, with his kind of sorrow and willingness to take on the humility himself, Lord, would you help us have that kind of spirit, that kind of attitude for those that you love as much as you love us? And Lord, would you help us to say the hard things and do the hard things in your name with your kind of heart, Lord, to honor you and to see those ones you love restored. In Jesus' name, amen.